what we're going to be doing tonight is going through sort of an in-depth study of Jesus' temptations in the desert, in particular, particularly relevant just at the start of the season of Lent, because as we know, the temptations take place when Jesus is out. Um, it's 40 days in the desert, which is where we get the whole entire idea of Lent coming from. So anyway, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And feel free, any questions at any time, to go ahead and ask, or um, won't mind. More fancy graphics I just went overboard with, again, because they're fun. Now, anyway, um, the temptations appear in three, diff- three of the gospel accounts. Um, they appear in the Gospel of Matthew, they are in Mark, and they are in Luke, but they are absent from the Gospel of John. And in Mark, they are sort of just summarized in one quick sentence. He doesn't go through and account all the different, um, all three temptations. And the reason why is Mark is, is a very short gospel, and there's this, always this sense of sort of like immediacy um, in Mark. Like everything, is just like Christ, is, you think he's just frantically going from like place to place and reading through the gospel of Mark. So like it always says the beginning of the sentence is like immediately Christ went out here, immediately and it's supposed to show sort of like the urgency of his mission. Um, so in Mark, all it says is that immediately this, this that the, sorry, I should go back. This is right after, Jesus goes into the desert right after his baptism. So he's baptized in the Jordan by John. The Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And God, the Father, says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it's after that, that Christ goes out into the desert for 40 days um, Yes. How did anybody know that happened? That what happened? The temptation. Because the Bible says so. How did the evangelist know to write about it? Um, maybe Christ told him. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I would assume that either the Holy Spirit had to tell them or Christ told them himself. I mean, it says in the Bible how the amount of stuff that Christ told the apostles wouldn't even be able to fill all the volumes. Like, so I'm sure there's, so, I mean, they're friends. They were with each other a long time. He might have told them all about it. I mean, or they, through divine inspiration. But I, I would assume that Christ told them. Um, so anyway, um, so Mark, it says that, that, this is right after the baptism, that immediately the Spirit drove him into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and was tempted by Satan, and he was with beasts, and the angels ministered to him. The end. And actually, notice there's a, um, there is a one thing that's different in each of the three accounts, is they use a different word for the devil in each of them. So in Mark, they refer to it as the devil is Satan. In Matthew, they actually call him the tempter. And in the account in Luke, they call him the devil. Um, is that relevant? I don't know, but there you go. But all right, so the full account is in both Mark and Luke. And the difference between the two is a difference of order. So um, Luke, in his account, he starts with the temptation to turn the stones to bread. And then the second account is when Satan takes Jesus to the top of the mountain and offers him all the kingdoms of the earth. And then the third temptation is to throw himself off from the temple with the idea that the the, the hope that the angels will bear him up. That's the the order in the Gospel of Luke. However, um, in Matthew, the last two are switched. Wait, does this work? 
Ah, oh, there we go. Um, the, in Matthew, the order is switched. And so, um, so you have the temptation to throw from the temple to the second one. And then the last one is Satan offering all the kingdoms of the earth. And Pope Benedict, and a lot of what I'm going to say, I stole from Pope Benedict, particularly in his book, his first volume of Jesus is Nazareth, that he has a whole chapter in there, if you've never read it, on the temptations in the desert. And it's the best thing I've ever read on the topic. It's fantastic. And anyway, one of the things he talks about is that there, this is a slightly more natural order um, when you look at, at the, what the temptation of each actually is, that it makes a little bit more sense of them progressing. So this is the order that we'll follow as we go through. And like I said, you can interrupt me at any time if you have any questions. Um, I would assume it's three different Greek words, but I don't know. I don't know Greek. Yeah. Scott Hahn didn't tell me when I looked at my Bible. <laughs> That's where I get my knowledge of Greek, because <laughs> I don't know it myself. Um, um, wait, I'm trying to remember. There's actually a debate. Supposedly Mark was the first gospel written. And suppose I mean, they're not even entirely sure. They've changed every, like, 50 years, they change which they think. Um, so I don't know if Luke or Matthew was written first. Oh, okay, yeah, I don't know which was written first. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. All right, so anyway, providing the, the small context, like what happens immediately in the gospel before the temptation of the desert, we already said, which is the... Christ's baptism. Um, but the big context, um, meaning sort of like what is the Old Testament um, symbolism that, I mean, the, one of the big things always to look at, especially when you're looking at the life of Christ, is what's called typology, um, meaning that God, as a great storyteller, he always sort of foreshadows things in like the Old Testament that are going to be brought to completion in the New Testament, and it's sort of St. Augustine, how the old is, wait, is the revealed in the new, and, or in the new is hidden in the old, that, that God, I mean, all times are present to, to God, and that he worked into the story, just like you read a great novel, like there's hints of the ending in the beginning, and the same is true in the Bible, and that's what we call typology. So, when I say looking at the context, like, what are those Old Testament themes that you can see present in the 40 days in the desert? And in particular, the temptations when you get there. And so the first of these is actually not going to be the Israel in the desert. That, this is one I added, actually, after I made the slides. And that is, going back even before Israel in the desert, um, that, um, that the temptation in the wilderness for Christ is first and foremost, um, a, a temptation of Christ's filial, filial obedience as the Son of God. And this harkens back to Christ as being the new Adam. That, um, so, there's the, so the first part is it's supposed to, of the temptation of Christ in the desert is supposed to be um, foreshadowed in the temptation of Adam. So Adam was tempted and he failed the temptation um, as acting as the Son of God. And then, I mean, in a different way, obviously, the son of Adam being a son of God, then Christ as the son. But Christ also was tempted by the devil, but he succeeded. 
um, he, he is the new Adam that um, did not fail in his test of obedience. And then the second place you can see sort of that link between the Old Testament and the New is with the Israelites wandering in the desert that they wandered for 40 years. Um, and so it's, therefore it's significant that Christ is in the desert also for 40 days. Um, that Pope Benedict was talking about how the number 40 was very significant to the Israelites because it was they, um, they, they thought it was sort of a very com- like sort of complete number because of the four corners of the earth um, being meaning, referring, the earth, earth, you always hear the phrase like the four corners of the earth. Well, I mean, obviously the earth doesn't have four corners, but that's to refer like to the expanse of the entire world. And then the Ten Commandments, they thought was the expanse of God's law. And together they combined sort of like this real, very symbolically um, really important number. So that's why 40 like doesn't have the same symbolism to us nowadays as it did to them, the Israelites back then. And actually... Another symbolism with that 40, before I come back to this, is if you went to the Mass yesterday on the Wednesday, the first Wednesday in Lent after Ash Wednesday, the Gospel reading, or not the, it's not the Gospel, the Old Testament reading um, every year is always from the book of Jonah and Christ wanting to destroy the city of Nineveh. And what the Ninevites do in order to appease God is that they put on um, Ash, um, sacks and, no wait, sackcloth and ashes, and they fast for 40 days. Um, and so that's another Old Testament um, symbol. But anyway, this big one, really big one, is that of the Israelites wandering through the desert for 40 days. Um, I mean, 40 years. Thank you. And anyway, you can really see um, this symbolism in that the Israelites, at the end of their 40 years, they cross through the waters of the Jordan River, that the miracle is where we always think of God splitting the Red Sea, but he actually does the same thing again with the Jordan River when the Israelites enter into Israel, that they carry the Ark of the Covenant out into the water, the water stops, and the Israelites pass through the Jordan River into the Promised Land, being led by Joshua, Yeshua, um, in Hebrew, into the promised land. And likewise, Jesus, in a backwards order, start with the baptism in the Jordan River, which traditionally has been thought to be the same spot the Israelites crossed over, that the small t tradition is that, like I said, that Jesus was baptized in the same spot the Israelites entered into the promised land. And then Jesus, Yeshua, the exact same name, leads us this time into the desert for the sake of going to the true promised land. So it's, um, you can really see that, that symbolism, that typology working there. And then the other um, Old Testament symbol is especially that of the Old Testament prophet, that, that in the Old Testament prophets, before they would go and start their public preaching and their public ministry, they would always go out into the wilderness and experience a time of fasting and prayer. And the idea is that you need to go first, start with the contemplation and the prayer, and it's only from the contemplation and prayer that God would bring them out to actually perform their active ministry. I mean, this actually provides a lot of um, lessons to be learned for our, even, I mean, our own lives. And you even look at the saints, and I think particularly of St. Catherine of Siena, 
that she followed the exact same model and that she started the first portion of her life as basically a hermit living in her parents' house in her room praying. Um, she, so she starts in the desert. She's praying all the time, starts with the contemplation, and then God calls her out of her contemplation into action. And then it was from after that, starting with that contemplation, she went out and actually um, started her ministry. So it's the same thing. The Old Testament, the prophets, they start with the contemplation, the, their, their time in the desert, and then Christ brings, or then God would start their ministry. So Christ, especially when you look at the context of, sorry, I, got, I knew I put water here somewhere. When you look at the context of the baptism before the 40 days in the desert, that what the baptism of Christ symbolically um, sort of represents is that Christ, obviously, he did not need a baptism in the same way that we do, in that he didn't need original sin washed away or anything like that. But his baptism, which culminates in the Holy Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove in the Father's words, is supposed to represent his sort of symbolic vesting of his messianic mission, like the starting of his ministry. I mean, we always talk about Christ and his threefold office of priest, prophet, and king, that it's, it's sort of like Christ's um, symbolic anointing. And you think of, for instance, like the Old Testament, when you have like the kings, like Samuel coming to Saul and David, and he pours the oil on their head and anoints them, um, signifying that like the beginning of their office, of their ministry um, as a king, that this is Christ's symbolic um, anointing. I mean, that's why the word... Um, Christ actually literally means like the anointed one, um, because, which makes sense when you look, think about it this way, because Jesus was never actually like anointed with oil. Um, I mean, I guess maybe after he was dead, but not in the same way. Any questions? All right. Now, anyway. Um, Now, so why is it important that Jesus went out and was tempted in the desert? And first and foremost, um, it's important because um, it, in Hebrews, it states that, um, start with in Hebrews 4.15, that for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the idea is that it's important that for Christ went out and experienced the whole cup of human suffering. That he experienced, um, like he's experienced hunger, he experienced pain, he even experienced what it was like to be tempted. Um, that he partook all aspects of the human condition. And, um, but the difference is he, was t he experienced temptation, but not sin. Um, and the that's something I remember talking to, I, this is a long time ago, um, all the way back when I was in high school, I remember talking to another kid and he was about this very topic and he was kind of upset saying, well, how can Jesus be like all of us and experience all of our suffering if he didn't actually have sin? And Plato put it, um, I mean, obviously he didn't know anything about Christ, but put it, that, how that logically makes sense. He put it best when he said how a doctor, in order to experience sickness, needs to, um, needs to experience sickness in order to really commiserate with his patient, but that a judge does not need to commit a crime in order to understand a criminal. 
Um, so this is why it's Jesus experiencing of temptation. Um, that's experiencing of the, he's experiencing the sickness. He experiences the pain. He experiences the consequences of sin, which is death. I mean, Christ did not have to experience death because he did not commit sin, the natural consequence of, being, of which being death. Um, so he experienced the, the suffering, but he didn't actually experience the crime, meaning the, um, the sin itself. Now, and so that's why it's important to remember that Christ's temptation is different than ours and that his is a purely external temptation, that our temptations are um, the flesh, the world, and the devil. So we have external temptations, but we also have our internal temptations from our own concupiscence, our own tendency towards sin. Christ did not have the, that internal temptation, only that external temptation. Now, um, missing a slide that I never made. Oh, well. Um, the, there's another slide. You can imagine it's there. That um, it's, it should say common interpretations. That the most basic interpretation when looking at Christ's temptations that is very simplistic and sort of misses the big picture um, is that the d- devil is just um, tempting Jesus with... Um, using simple and sort of effective human temptations, like, you're hungry, here's some food. Um, oh, um, people are naturally prideful. That worked with Adam, like, here's um, pride, like, you can be a great king, um, and here you can have some power. Um, that, that, that sort of, um, that, um, yeah, that this is, um, so like this, like this, uh, this interpretation is like the saint is somehow arguing like the true temptation is to try to get Jesus to use like his God skills to like zap himself like some meals and not actually stay fasting. But like if that's very simple um, interpretation that sort of misses the true significance um, of what's going on actually with the temptations, which brings us to um, this. And this is going to be the sort of the main theme is that the devil never tempts with evil things. He always tempts with things with, that are good, just in the wrong time, in the wrong place, in the wrong context. So the things that you look at with the temptations of Christ, that each and of themselves is, and in fact, you look at it and you can say, wow, that actually would be a good thing. So, for instance, turning rocks into bread. Um, what better thing could there be than for to feed people to end world hunger? Like, hey, you've got um, Jesus going around with his God power, zapping all the rocks into bread. Everybody's able to eat. Like, that is a good, you can look at that and say, wow, that would be a good thing um, on, in of itself. Or the idea of throwing himself from the temple. That providing, or another way you can say that, is a miracle like that people could not argue against. Um, people always go back to the idea of like, well, if God exists, why doesn't he show himself in this way that just sort of proves his existence to everybody? That's what that second temptation of throwing himself from the temple is. Is he's on the top of the temple, let's throw himself off, let's fly around, let's, um, let's show off that all these supernatural powers that people have to believe. Um, at first, you can look at that and go, wow, that actually... More people believe in God, that's a good thing. Or the um, 
you can imagine thinking in an earthly sense, the last one giving um, Christ all of the kingdoms of the earth. Um, I mean, if you want to have the perfect ruler who's going to build a, build a, build a perfect society on earth more than anyone else, wouldn't it be Christ? Um, talk about Plato's philosopher king that, um, and then some. But, as with Christ's temptations in the desert, as with all temptations, what they are at its core is that, um, as St. Benedict, he says, is God is the issue. Meaning, what it is, is Satan always tries to, there's a hierarchy of goods. That you have God as the ultimate good, and then there are secondary goods um, underneath the primary good. And that what Satan does is he tries to take the secondary goods and to get us to substitute them as pr for primary goods. Or it's like if you've ever read the book um, Brideshead Revisited, there's a great line in there by one of the characters when they say that there's no um, greater evil than to set up our own good and rival to that of God's. That, that, so that, at its core, what temptation does is that Satan's not blatant enough and stupid enough to say, like, hey, here's evil, um, like, go and do this, because then people would not want to do it. He presents the evil as good, or he gives them, and he, or gives them a good and gets that's different than what God wants and tries to draw them away from the primary good. Now, um, and so, I might have gotten it slightly wrong, but it's that there's nothing, no greater evil than to set up a good, a rival good to that of God's. Um, I could be slightly off in the quote, but it was um, Julia said it. All right, near the end of it. Yeah. Um, and so when I say there's primary goods and secondary goods, so this is what the devil frequently does is he wants us to focus um, on the, You think of God and his primary good as somehow being less real and less immediate and less important than the secondary goods of here and now. Um, that there is this, always this temptation. There is, I mean, there's the spiritual world and there's the physical world. And there's always a temptation to think of the physical world as the more real than the spiritual. And therefore to think of the, spirit, the physical needs as being the more important of the two to the point of, for, of forgetting the true primary goods of um, the spiritual. And so I have a good quote from Pope Benedict. And he says that at the heart of all temptations is the act of pushing God aside because we perceive him as secondary, if not actually superfluous and annoying in comparison with all the apparently far more urgent matters that fill our lives. Um, Yes, and whereas he also says that temptation does not invite us to directly to do evil, it pretends to show us a better way whereby we can actually make the world, quote, a better place. Um, now, which I'll come back to, I mean, this is the idea if you hear someone like that preaches a purely social gospel, that this is what exactly what a social gospel is. It's we're just going to help people with their physical needs, like the you can say like the, the corporal works of mercy to the point of forgetting the spiritual ones. And um, this, is the, this is the constant theme of the three temptations, which we'll come back to. There we are. 
So um, another way of saying it is that in the temptation, Satan, what he's trying to do is remember that it was at the baptism Christ was um, was given his symbolically given his mission um, and his mission being a spiritual mission that he's ultimately what he's trying to do is get Jesus to set aside his spiritual mission and be happy just with a physical one um, to substitute it out. Um, but that's important to remember that Christ did not come to end famine, war, and disease, um, which are all terrible things, but they're all temporary. They're fleeting. Um, they are not eternal. And that Christ did not come to build an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. Um, and that actually, so that, um, and that how Christ's ultimate mission is the salvation of man through the, um, dying on the cross. And that's actually why later on, in Matthew, Peter, um, when he at, um, was refusing to accept the idea that Christ had to die on the cross, um, Christ calls, said famously, like, get behind me, Satan, um, because the idea that ultimately Peter was not accepting what Christ's mission was at that time, he wanted him to have, he was falling into that temptation of trying to substitute, maybe just have like an earthly mission, not, not that... Um, that important spiritual one. So now what we're going to do is go through each of the individual temptations in a little more depth. So the first temptation with fancy flame graphics and quote from Machiavelli is, if you are the son of God, simply command these stones to become bread. And so I have the Machiavelli quote, which sort of summarizes what are the modern actually worldview that the physical we view as real and the spiritual is not. Now, um, that Pope Benedict famously, or he says in Jesus of Nazareth, that shouldn't it be the first test of the Redeemer before the world's gaze and on the world's behalf to give it bread and to end all hunger? Um, and that the idea that a Messiah should end all hunger is a really common idea. Um, the Jews... Thought, many Jews thought this because, remember, in the desert, what did God do? He fed them. He actually gave them physical food. He gave them manna in the desert. Um, they, so they, they expected, a lot of them, a Messiah to literally bring bread. Um, that, or think of like ancient Rome where the emperors had their famous bread and circuses. That the, 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 the emperor, who was the Messiah of the, of the civilization, their... Um, the head of all of society, the most powerful person in the world, what does he do? He literally feeds everyone, gives them food. Um, or, um, or think of Stalin and his five-year plans um, in the Soviet Union where he always kept saying how they would turn deserts into bread. Um, that that's, that's the idea, like uh, that a Messiah should be providing food for, for everybody. Um, and it's not that Christ was indifferent to um, people, to hunger, and was indifferent to people's physical needs, but he just recognized that physical needs are not eternal. They are um, ephemeral, that they are not going to last. And that's why to see the true sort of best response to the first temptation is not actually in Matthew 4, but comes in John 6 in the Bread of Life discourse that when, when the, after Christ has fed the 5,000 and given people all, like, fed their physical needs, given them 
um, bread for their bellies that they come back and want more. And this is when he famously goes and saying, no, like Moses gave or God gave the Israelites and Moses bread from heaven and manna. But that was physical food just to feed that didn't last. But I'm going to give you eternal food, the bread from heaven and um, meaning the, himself in the Eucharist. And so that is, so the greatest response to the first temptation is actually in that bread of life discourse when he when this is precisely what he says that no um, that the spiritual trumps the physical. It's not that the physical doesn't matter, but in comparison, it doesn't matter. Um, and so a good quote by um, a German Jesuit who is executed during the. Um, World War II by the Nazis named Alfred Delp um, is that bread is important, freedom is more important, but most important of all is unbroken fidelity and faithful adoration, which sort of summarizes um, this point very well. Um, And I mean, and this is important just on a practical level when you think of nowadays, um, that one of Charity, like us um, as Christians, we are called to the corporal works of mercy and of charity to the poor and literally feeding the hungry. But when it's done without the spiritual works of mercy at the same time, when the food is not presented with um, the gospel, then, or you even think of when a country, for instance, just gives, um, goes in and gives like physical aid and does not do anything to actually help the welfare of them in the long run. That as Pope Benedict put it, he says that they're giving that basically he says aid without the gospel gives stones instead of bread. Um, that they might literally be giving bread, but what they're giving is truly a stones. Um, that it's not going to feed their souls. And so likewise, it's like I said, it's important for us to do things like literally feed the poor, but to focus on that social gospel apart from the real gospel, um, it becomes meaningless. Um, that the two should go hand in hand. Any question? Anything to add? Does that make Yeah. Yeah, no, he ended up doing all these things, but in at God's time and according to God's will, that by refer, refusing the temptations of the devil, he was actually basically given all of those things. Um, that's a good point. How do you spell Delp's name? D-E-L-P. I got it. Um, whoops, I was already supposed to be on this slide. So we can skip it. It's stone bread. All right. All right, which brings us to the second temptation, which is longer, that then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels charge of you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Um, Now, the first thing about this to note is that the devil 
is a scripture scholar and that he is actually quoting um, Psalm 91 um, to Christ. And this is an important thing because the fact like that, um, that the devil does know the Bible, he just knows, but, he, but he's not rooted in the actual truth, meaning he takes scripture and he quotes it out of context. Um, there's a great short story written by the Russian author Vladimir Solovyev um, called The Antichrist. And in the short story, the Antichrist is uh, given an honorary doctorate of theology at, from the University of Tübingen, which, if you remember, is actually the university in Germany where Pope Benedict went, as well as the famous Catholic heretic Hans Kuhn and a bunch of other actually Catholic, um, and actually even Protestant scholars as well. And that in the, um, and he's a, he's a great scripture scholar in the story. And so the this is important because it's important to remember that, first of all, this is a matter of truth that now nowadays, I mean, this is a constant theme that we don't believe in universal truth, um, most of society. So the uh, people think, well, p you can take different scripture out of, con in whatever context you want it to mean. Like it can, you can read the Bible and get, it can mean one thing to you. Someone else can read the Bible and it can mean something else to you. But this is Christ rebuking saying, no, you know what? There is actually a right interpretation to scripture. Um, and actually this is one of the, sort of the, one of the great arguments against the Protestant idea of sola scriptura, um, which we've talked about before, that a million different people can read the Bible and take different things in different contexts to mean different things to themselves, that apart from the infallible magisterium of the church, um, as a teacher, as a true guide of what is the actual um, meaning of, um, of the verse, um, you end up with... All sorts of different interpretations. Um, yeah. I remember I've offending a friend of mine who is not a Catholic and arguing about proper interpretation of a Bible verse round and around in circles for um, hours and hours. And then finally at the end of it, I just remember going like, you know, if only we just had some sort of like infallible teacher, like, I mean, call him like a magisterium or something to actually know what this means. And he didn't talk to me for a couple months. But, but he's still my friend. All right. But anyway, so that's the first main point. But the, main, the other main point of what Satan's actually tempting Christ to do is he's trying to, like we said, he's trying to get him. Um, first of all, on a different side, this is a little top of a Botticelli painting about the baptism and the temptations in the desert. And I've always thought the representation of Satan strange because he looks like a Franciscan monk with wings. But I don't know why, what was going through Botticelli's mind. Maybe he didn't like Franciscan monks. I don't know. Um, but that aside, um, the, like we said, the temptation, the true temptation with the second one is that Christ to provide a miracle for all to see, um, the, for God sort of as a, to provide this final proof of his existence um, to everyone in an um, in a way that they can't argue against. Um, I mean, and so ultimately what, or actually it goes back, you remember we talked about the Romans, that the ancient Romans, the emperor provided bread and circuses, that he distracted all the people by giving them bread, but then circuses, like great shows, spectacles to watch, 
that if you look at the first two temptations, it's Satan trying to get God, Jesus to give bread and circuses. The first one's the bread. This is the circus. Um, so ultimately, what he's trying to, tempt, trying to do is take away the need for faith. Um, I mean, and this is actually, if you were at the 11 o'clock Mass on Sunday, what Father Newman talked about is he talked about the two parts of, well, why did we, God give us free will? And with it, ultimately, the need for faith, too. Why, it is, um, why is it that we are able to actually do evil? Why wouldn't it be more loving if God just sort of take away our free will to just make us do what's good? And ultimately, there is a certain degree of mystery in it, in that it is obviously better to have free will um, than not. And that is so... Um, so that, that extreme importance of freedom, of not being robots, um, is what makes this temptation so um, important. That if God is to sort of force faith upon all of us, it wouldn't be faith, because there would be no freedom in it. I mean, but this is something that the world, that non-Christians have struggled with for a long time, this idea. And if you read for, uh, Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, and in the famous chapter in there, The Grand Inquisitor, um, there's this, this part in there where um, Ivan Karamazov um, is sort of, he's railing against basically God and his sort of the great, um, the great accusation is, well, why does, if God's so loving, why does he allow people freedom? Um, but ultimately, because um, we know um, this is a mystery, but we know that freedom is that good. Um, and that is why God allows it to us, even though knowing that we will mess it up um, and mess things up all the same. Does that make moderate sense? Clear as mud? All right. Or when he speaks in parables, too. And it says, uh, and he, which I, all people always struggle with, the idea that he actually, it says that he says, says the parable basically so that they would not understand. And I, like, that's a lot, I mean, it's a, it's a strange thing to think of, um, that he didn't want to, like, that the faith is um, the virtue, I mean, there's truly a virtue of faith, and it's better to have faith than not. Um, um, anyway, um, the third temptation, that again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all those I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. So ultimately, what this temptation is, is the simple substitution of an earthly kingdom for the heavenly kingdom. Um, that this sort of strikes at the what form the Messiah will take. Are they going to have an earthly Messiah or a heavenly Messiah? Um, and th this is important because despite the prophecies of Isaiah, which were pretty clear about, Christ, of the, about the Messiah being a heavenly Messiah, there, that in the Old Testament, when God made promises to the Israelites, he made them, they were physical promises. He, like time and again, like, gave them physical blessings. And so making that jump of God time and again giving them physical blessings to a purely spiritual blessing was a hard leap for a lot of the Israelites. And so they 
had a hard time changing their expectations from being that of a physical Messiah, of a literal new King David, um, to, to lead them out of bond, like to deliver them from the Romans, set up a new kingdom, to gr- build this great new, um, the new, I mean, new David, new Solomon. They, want, they expected this earthly type of Messiah. It was hard for them to make that leap to a heavenly one. Um, they wanted a military leader. And the biggest place where you can really see um, this two different types of messiahs is in the, the story in the gospel when Pontius Pilate gives the Jews the option of re- releasing Jesus or Barabbas. That in this is where um, Pilate sort of symbolically, not symbolically, literally gives them the option of here's the heavenly Messiah and here is the earthly Messiah. Which one are you going to pick? And so John in his gospel, he calls Barabbas a robber, which um, like this is um, Pope Benedict knowing Greek, not me, which the Greek word for robber that he uses was actually at that time a synonym they would use the same word for a, to mean a resistance fighter. And in the Gospel of Mark, Mark states uh, when talking about Barabbas that he had taken part in an uprising. And in that context, he was a murderer. And Luke simply refers to him as a notorious prisoner. Um, and so, as Pope Benedict says, that Barabbas was probably the leader of a particular political uprising. And one of the other interesting things is when you look at his name, that the name Barabbas, Bar Abba, actually means son of the father. And how um, the early church father Origen actually comments that up until the third century, that many translations, or not translations, many manuscripts of the gospel account would actually refer to um, the figure in question as Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, son of the father. So Pilate's giving the people the option, do you want Jesus, son of the father, who is the political um, revolutionary that's going to be that earthly Messiah, or do you want Jesus, son of the father, who is that heavenly Messiah? And which do they choose? The earthly Messiah. Um, They choose the here and the now, what they see before him. So they're falling into the third temptation um, at that time. Now, I mean, and this is a temptation that has plagued people throughout history and continually plagues people time and again. It wasn't just the Jews that fell into this temptation, but man falls into this temptation all the time. In that every time we're tempted to try to build like the kingdom of God here on earth, the idea that we can somehow build a perfect utopian society, um, it never works out. That's why in that same story about the Antichrist by Alexander, not Alex, is it Alexander Soliev? I can never, can't pronounce it. I've read it, but I can't pronounce it. Um, Soliev, Solovyev, so, I think that's right, Solovyev, it's S-O-L-O-V-I-E-V, it doesn't matter. But in that story, the Antichrist, on top of being a scripture scholar, he has a, a book that he has written that's entitled The Open Way to World Peace and Welfare. Um, it's this, so it's this idea that, you know, we can build perfect societies here on earth. And whenever that people make that promise and we try it, it, it I mean, this is something we talked about in previous 
um, times or previous classes earlier in the year is that whenever anyone promises heaven on earth, the result is always hell on earth. Um, as, what's it called, as Pope Benedict says in his book, Truth and Tolerance, that wherever politics try to be redemptive, it promises too much. Where it wishes to do the work of God, it becomes not divine, but demonic. That, I mean, this is what happens in the 20th century when you have the idea from the Soviet Union that through communism they can build this utopia, this perfect society, and the end result is the gulag. You have the Nazi Germany who thought through their, um, basically through evolution and hurrying up the fact they could build a perfect society, and you end up with the Holocaust. And it always, um, that, that, so whenever anyone says, all right, we're going to build heaven on earth, it's always a good idea that that's when to turn and run the other direction. Um, now, any questions? We're good? Dystopia. Instead of a utopia, it's a dystopia. Like, you know, think of like dystopia, not like the dystopian novels. Um, like books like 1984 and. Yeah, the opposite of the perfect society. And so the idea is whenever people promise that perfect society, which utopia literally means no place, um, based off the St. Thomas More book on, on the, the idea of this perfect society, and he named it no place because it just doesn't exist, that whenever people try to build that utopia, it not only does it not exist, they end up with a horrible abomination. Um, so, which as an interesting educational or... I'm not educational, but interesting fact is that this idea of utopian literature, of talking about ideal places and in a farcical way that they don't exist, this isn't a very ancient idea. It goes all the way back to Plato. I mean, the whole idea of Plato's Republic was he was going through and describing this perfect society in a very subtle and sarcastic manner, um, and which people kind of, again, reading Plato, um, mess up their interpretation because they think he's being literal. Um, because some of it, but it's, but he's being very, very subtle in his um, satire, as good satire should be. But anyway, those are the three main things about the interpretations. What are just some other um, general things to take from it? Um, important one is just the reality of evil that um, Satan is not merely a figure made up by the church to scare kids in their beds and to get people to do what they want. Um, like the Satan's not just part of, like Satan is not just within all of us. This idea, this part of like the darker sides of man, but no, is an actual person um, that often in modern society, particularly living in like America, we tend to forget about that part of life. Um, that, the, the, that the, there really are forces out there that do wish us harm, that are um, persons, and, um, and we can never forget that. However, two false, um, false ways of dealing with this fact that people can tend to fall into are that of sort of fright and fascination, meaning that people can, when dwelling upon the reality of evil can tend to become overwhelmed by it and become actually frightened by evil um, and lose sight of the fact that Christ has already conquered and that no power under heaven or earth can, um, 
can stand up to the name of Jesus Christ and that the battle has already been won. But then likewise, there's that other temptation which our modern society particularly falls into, and that is the fascination um, of actually starting, of getting a little too fascinated with um, the darker things of life to do things like turn um, figures that have tr traditionally demonic um, properties and like, like, like let's make them heroes. So for instance, we'll start go with the popular one of vampires. And if you ever read Bram Stoker's Dracula and his descriptions of Dracula, he, he describes Dracula in very demonic terms. And it's this idea of like Dracula is the antichrist in not in the political sense, but is in antichrist. Meaning that you think of Christ of giving his blood for mankind, you have Dracula, it's the opposite of the sucking of blood, of the taking of life. And it's this tr a truly demonic figure. And so, um, and, and this is true of, I mean, Bram Stoker didn't invent the idea of a vampire, but vampires throughout mythology and stuff throughout, that there is something truly demonic about the idea of a vampire. Or another one's like dragons throughout stories. Like the dragon is always traditionally an evil demonic creature. Um, is representative of the devil, described as the dragon in the Bible. And what do we do nowadays? We get sort of fascinated and we turn them into the heroes in our stories. Um, and that, so, or another good example of this is, like I said, or Saruman, and this is sort of his great sin in the Lord of the Rings, that he gets too fascinated looking into this, um, what's called the Palantir, this thing where he sort of is able to see Sauron, the evil one, and he finally gets overcome by the evil. And actually, interestingly, J.R. Tolkien added that in there because at the time, just a little history aside, um, he was very good friends with C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was more and more becoming friends with this other author in Oxford named Charles Williams. And Charles Williams wrote a lot of very demonic like books. He was a Christian, but he wrote about very about ghosts and lots of very demonic topics that um, Tolkien thought was just unwise to even delve into. And so he actually put Saruman in there as sort of a rebuke um, to Charles Williams. Um, but anyway, and this is sort of, I remember I was, saw one episode at a friend's house once of the, like the TV show Ghost Hunters for instance, and there's these people going around messing with things they didn't know what they were doing where they found they're like there's like a spirit in the room. And so what do they do? Like, we're going to try and talk to it. And there's like, we're, it's things we have no idea what we're messing with, but we're going to just go mess around with it. And um, that this is the idea of like our society, um, there's this fascination that, I mean, there's a reason why um, movies about demon possession and everything are so popular in modern culture nowadays. I don't remember the name of it. There seems like there's one every couple of years. Well, there's a few of them that are true stories. And actually, if you want, yeah, um, yeah. Well, there's. I was on the interesting one. I mean, but it, I mean, so it's important to find that balance of like, you know, it is important that the world to remember like Satan is real, but not to, but he's also not not to become too fascinated with him. I mean, so actually, there was on the news a few months ago about this. Um, in Indianapolis, I don't know who saw this, it was the article in like the Indianapolis Herald about this family that was um, struggled with possession and there's like a 900 page police report of the family like taking the kids to the, um, like to the hospital and like kids walking up walls in front of doctors and policemen, like all these things like 
they're remembering like the stuff like they are real and it is important for society to remember that, but um, not to become too. It's not a spectacle, and not to become fascinated with it either. Exactly. Great point. Um, um, now, um, and actually, <coughs> all right, so the last two little quick slides is the first one is just the practical sort of Actually, both of them have to do with the practical. Um, I mean, this is sort of the classic when you're looking through Scripture, you go through all the meanings and the different interpretations, and you sort of end with the practical of, well, how, what does this mean for your life? And so it's the idea of, all right, we're in Lent. We're going to constantly are given with temptation. Like, so what are the practical ways um, of dealing with temptation? And um, I said, sorry to say, I probably don't have anything to add that you haven't actually heard before, being a parishioner of St. Mary's or at some time in your life, but it's important to remember the same things. Um, if I can find the actual page that I was on. All right, but the, the constantly of delving into Scripture, of arming yourself, um, of time in prayer, um, the constant reception of the sacraments, um, it, that... Um, actually, it's like identifying what the temptations are so that you can know how to, um, how to deal with it. This is that idea when we went all the way back to that, when, that talk on leisure um, of examining of, of yourself, of, of, of the, the unexamined life is not worth living. That, that I, concept is that we need to actually take time um, leisure time, look at ourselves, look at where we're struggling. I mean, this is the whole concept behind the examination of conscience, to know, you know, this is the way that I am truly tempted. What This is the sin that I struggle with. Like, I might not have any problem with, um, what was I going to say, like, gluttony. Like, I don't like food that much. Um, I do like food that much. But, um, so I might not like food that much, but I struggle with sloth. Like, I'm... Um, so it's so actually identifying what your sin is, and then actually taking the time. You know what? There is scripture that actually corresponds to that. Like memorize that scripture. Um, that I mean, Catholics don't memorize scripture the way Protestants do, um, and it's shame because it can be very helpful of actually going and spending time um, in adoration of constant prayer. Um, I mean, of the idea that Christ or we're supposed to pray constantly. This is something that we don't think, I mean, we don't do. Like some of us will do things like, for instance, pray the liturgy of the hours, and so we might pray in the morning or the evening and maybe have a time of prayer in between, but that's not praying constantly. That's praying frequently. The idea of praying constantly is I always think of going back to the, the old play, like Fiddler of the Roof, and how I've always found sort of fascinated with um, Tevia and his like continual just dialogue that he has with God that is actually very similar when you see the lives of saints, that they just have like this, they are praying constantly. They're just like talking with God the entire day straight through. Not like in a crazy fashion like the Irish guy in Braveheart, um, but, um, but in, in an actual um, like sort of true dialogue. Now, 
So the last thing we can end with is sort of, so the example of sort of the anti-temptations of someone living their life the opposite of the way the temptations of the desert are, someone not making, um, this pr putting the secondary goods first, of putting the primary good first, is that of Mother Teresa, which the irony is, is this goes back to the idea of corporal versus spiritual works of mercy. Who in the 20th century who has thought of more in regards to the corporal works of mercy than Mother Teresa? And yet, she never put the physical needs above the spiritual needs. That, um, so for instance, when different countries would ask her if to send her nuns into their country, the first thing she would always do is make sure that they would be able to have priests alongside as well as the Blessed Sacrament and daily Mass. And if they wouldn't, she wouldn't send to her nuns. And actually how they're nuns, they would start every day with, um, hold on, I don't know if I have the, t yeah, that they would have the nuns spend every morning in hours of adoration before they actually go and do their actual work. Um, and so the, and this is, um, so this can be, like, so I said, I mean, this is going to be a great temptation. Nowadays, we tend to think of like, oh, the physical needs matter, like priests, oh, the being, doing priestly things, like celebrating the sacraments, um, hearing confessions, doing, attending to the spiritual needs, like, that's not so important. What's more important is if they need to be like glorified social workers and go do something practical, help out the physical needs. Or it's like, for instance, this is, I mean, the criticism of Mother Teresa that a famous atheist like Christopher Hitchens made, um, and he wrote a book against Mother Teresa in a documentary as well, where he tried to argue, you know what, that she wouldn't do any actual good because, you know what, she didn't actually heal anyone. That, they're, that they didn't. Um, her group, they would not heal anyone. They would just basically help them die with dignity and, um, and attend to their spiritual needs and help them to die in as much dignity as they could rather in like a bed with the nuns on, in their house um, being cared for rather than in a gutter. Um, but they weren't trying to go and like get them operations to save them. They didn't have the means of doing that. That was not what they're trying to do. Um, and this, so this is that great criticism as well. They're attending, she's attending to the spiritual, not the physical. Um, so therefore, isn't that a great evil? And the answer is no, that is a great good um, in that she actually had things the right direction.